Good morning. We're nearing the end of our sermon series that's entitled The Grand Story, Exploring Creation, Fall, Redemption, and Recreation Through Genesis, Romans, and Revelation. You know, the Bible obviously is the book that narrates the grand story, and the Bible happens to be a wedding book. It's a wedding book. It begins with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2 and then concludes with a wedding here in Revelation chapter 19. It's also a Cinderella story. It promises that we will be rescued from a thankless home, from a place where we labor often without appreciation or reward. One day we'll be taken into the arms of the prince and whisked away to live in his palace. And if you're wondering what that scene is going to look like and sound like and uh, feel like, it's recorded for us right here. Let's read it. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's saints. Then the angel said to me, uh, John, here, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I think it was about three years ago or so, um, researchers conducted an extensive study to determine the happiest and the least happy cities in the United States of America. Don't recall all of the metrics they used in this study, but I know it was a pretty thorough analysis. And the results of it were, quite frankly, shocking. Um, the unhappiest city, the unhappiest place in the United States, turns out to be New York City, which I'm, I'm, I'm not shocked by that, but I would, that registers as kind of mild surprise. Um, everything I've heard about New York is, is like a great place to go. Maybe not a great place to live, but a great place to go. Aaron took a trip to New York a year ago in March and uh, you know, said it was absolutely fantastic. So you know, that wasn't shocking, mildly surprising. What was shocking, though, is the top five cities, happiest cities in the U.S., were all from the same state. Want to guess the state? Don't say it out loud because I don't want you to give it away. Uh, it wasn't Florida. It wasn't California. It wasn't the great state, my native state of Arizona. And it wasn't even our great state of Idaho. The happiest the state in uh, the United States is Louisiana. Louisiana. Top five cities were Lafayette, Homa, Shreveport, Alexandria, and Baton Rouge. Um, you know, I've been to Louisiana a number of times. I do have a very, what I think is a funny Louisiana story. So one Sunday, 
this would have been 17, 18 years ago, I was preaching at a church in Shreveport, which is one of the happiest cities. And after this uh, church was over, uh, I had to drive back to seminary, and, but I decided I would stop at the Burger King to get myself uh, some food for the road. I pulled into the Dr- Burger King drive through and the lady's voice comes out over the speaker. She says, place your order whenever you're ready, but we regret to inform you that we have run out of meat today. <laughs> I said, what? You've run out of what? Do you have any french fries? <laughs> We have run out of meat today at Burger King. And that was my Louisiana moment. <laughs> so you say, well, Louisiana, what's, what is it about that place? Um, I mean, economically, it's one of the poorest states in the country. Educationally, some of the worst schools, maybe the worst schools in the entire country. But with the researchers, once they come through all the data, what they came up with, the reason that Louisiana is a place of such happiness, relative happiness at least, is they know how to feast. Cajun culture, more than any other one in the United States, is a culture of feasting. It's a culture of whole families and the entire community getting together and cooking great food and having a great time. It's very significant, you know, given the place that we are today in our nation's history, where it does kind of feel like the social fabric of local communities really is, is eroding, you know. You know. Um, I guess apparently the social fabric down in the bayou is relatively strong because it's a culture built around food and festivity. So, there are three things I want to talk about this morning. First is simply that heaven here is pictured as a wedding feast. What are some of the things God might be trying to communicate to us by that image? Second, what I'm going to argue is that the Lord's Supper we celebrate is part of the wedding feast. And I'm kind of going to go into maybe how that might be so. And then finally, I want to conclude with a Cinderella feature of the story. You are the bride of Christ. What's your part to play in all of this? Let's begin with the wedding feast. I'm going to use as our point of reference the Jewish wedding feasts of the ancient world because those are the only wedding feasts that are really recorded in Scripture. Jewish wedding feasts were simply amazing. An ancient Jewish wedding feast lasted seven days. It was so much more than just a sit-down dinner after all the the guests... uh, have attended the wedding afterwards. It included seven full days of food, music, dance, and celebration. Seven days when your entire village shuts down for all intents and purposes. Seven days when everybody parties, the, the young, the old, everything in, everybody in between. And if you think about it in those terms, there's really, there's no close approximation that we have in our culture, certainly not in Idahoan culture, that, that begins to capture what that would be. Um, imagine what it would do to the social fabric of a community to have multiple seven-day parties throughout the course of the year. That is 168 hours of food and wine and festivity. I, when I think that, I'm like, why don't we live in a world like that? That, that would be so cool. Every feast in the Bible includes two parts. It includes rich food, 
high-calorie food, and it always includes wine. First, the wine. What's so great about wine? I mean, there's so much that's great about wine. But think about it this way. If you ever get a group of friends, 21 years old and up, that group of friends, around a table together, and everybody is drinking, everybody at the table is drinking, but nobody's drinking too much. Everybody is drinking a glass or two. Um, it's very rare that everybody's drinking and nobody is drinking too much. But if you, if you can do that, then you really have one of the most incredible moments of life, don't you? Because if it's a table of friends, I mean, we're all laughing together. We're all telling stories together. Conversation just flows so naturally and easily together. It is almost as if we have those things locked up inside of us. We have the stories and we have the laughs and we, we have the smiles, but we're kind of like a steer in a rodeo who's laying on his back on the, on the ground with his legs up in the air, tied up in a rope. Like all of the worries and the fears and frustrations and, and cares of this world and even all of our inhibitions keep all of that kind of tied inside of us, locked, locked down deep inside of us. But it's funny, a great bottle of wine um, with, a, with a group of friends is a key that unlocks us. It really does. Surely that's part of this image. I mean, wine also unlocks your palate and unlocks all the flavors of food. Um, but it especially unlocks laughter and joy. Luke 6.21, Jesus says these words, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. In that day you will leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. In other words, the laughter of the feast is going to be so, so great. Well, what about the food? Uh, I love these words of Edith Schaefer, the wife of an uh, important Christian thinker of the 20th century, Francis Schaefer. She talks about the role food should have and the daily hospitality of our lives. She writes, I want you to be aware of the power of pleasurable food. I mean, food, it can cheer up people after a hard day's work. It can comfort them when they feel down for some reason. It can amuse them when things are, feel a bit dull. And it can open up conversation when they feel silent and uncommunicative. Carefully chosen food, lovingly prepared and beautifully presented, demonstrates honor towards your guests. And it builds the fabric of loving bonds and social, of social cohesion in a community. We were made for loving relationships. And we profoundly express and experience those relationships around a table loaded with good food and good drink. What else will we enjoy at the feast? My fifth grade daughter decided this past week that she would take up reading Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and we have in our home um, the complete works of Jane Austen, a really thick tome with, with all of it. And so you have this little fifth grader carrying around a book this thick, and she's pretty hot stuff. And I took it to school, and everybody's like, whoa, what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading Jane Austen. <laughs> 
I said, well, Anya, how do you like the book? She said, I love it, Dad. Oh, where are you at at the book? She says, I'm at the ball. I'm at the dance. I mean, you know that you know, Austin was an enthusiastic dancer in her youth, and dancing forms an important part of all of her fictional, youth, uh, fictional heroines' lives. There's such pleasure in the dance. There's the pleasure of the pageantry of men and women dressed in their finest attire. There's the pleasure of seeing and being seen in a world when English women largely were kept away out of sight and inside the house. Um, there's, the, there's the pleasure of bodies beautifully in motion. I wish I knew that pleasure because I don't dance. Uh, and you might not sing. But imagine what it would be like to sing like Adele and to dance like Fred Astaire. Um, See, we're embarrassed, though. I'm embarrassed by my lack of gracefulness. You might be embarrassed by your voice and singing out loud in public. But faith, faith anticipates all of this. Faith, faith, here's faith. Faith is smelling the festival food wafting in from the kitchen and sensing the exhilaration of the events yet to come. Uh, Faith is so needed in this life because this life is so blasted hard. Um, In order to get through this terribly difficult thing that we call living, um, we need to have a vision, a vision that our faith latches onto. And this is the vision that we are given of overflowing goblets of wine and dancers and singers of a banqueting hall and a lordly estate with a long table filled with the best food. And of course, at the end of the table, at the head of the table, is the face of our groom. He's the best part of it all. And all your friends are there, and you're singing with them, and you're smiling. So here's your homework assignment for this week. What are you most looking forward to about the feast? I I challenge you to make these kinds of things concrete. And not only to come up with an answer to that question, but actually to tell somebody your answer. What am I most looking forward to about the royal wedding supper of the Lamb? Um, And share that with another person. Second, uh, let's talk about then the Lord's Supper. Someone has said that the foremost disputed words in church history are the words that Jesus spoke at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Uh, Those four words being, this is my body. Uh, The history of the Lord's Supper is just a history of suffering, really, because down throughout church history, we've not only fought each other over what those words mean, but we've killed each other. Um, Which is just so, 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 this is supposed to be our sign of unity, and it's become such a, a piece of division. At the Lord's Supper, we're doing a lot of things. At the Lord's Supper, we look back to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the great sacrifice that he made on our behalf there. We look forward to the great wedding feast that we, that's described here in Revelation 19. And in the present, we feed upon Christ. At least that's what Christians, most Christians down throughout the centuries believe is happening this supper. We actually feed upon Christ. So the question is... Um, how? How do we do that? And, and does the, the future wedding feast give us any clue as to how that might take place? Because clearly Jesus links the Lord's Supper to that future wedding feast. I'll say it in just a moment. When I say the, his words, this 
is the uh, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The very next sentence is, I tell you the truth, I will, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There he puts it in the negative. I won't drink it again until. We could also flip that and put it in the positive. I promise that I will drink a cup with you. This meal that we're sharing, I'm going to share it with you again as we feast in my Father's kingdom. So he's making the connection. We're not coming up with it on our own. But how do we feast, feast, uh, feed upon him? Roman Catholic Christians tell, teach and say that uh, Christ is physically present in the elements of the bread and wine. And they explain this by using Aristotelian philosophy. According to Aristotle, uh, Aristotle for dummies, and I'm one of them as far as Aristotelian philosophy is concerned, but according to Aristotle, everything that we see in the world has two parts to it. It has an inner essence and substance, and it has an outer, the word he uses is accidents or form. So to take uh, an acorn as an example, you know, an acorn has the outer form or accidents of a nut. And inside of it, its inner substance and essence is a maple tree. Well, what they believe happens is when the priest says the words, hulk est enim corpus meum, this is my body, and that moment the communion bell rings, and he's holding up the bread, that bread has been transformed into the physical body of Jesus Christ. Now, on the outside, it just has the accidents and material properties of bread, right? But on the, the inner essence and substance has become the body of Jesus. And likewise, same thing happens with the, the wine and the blood. That's why it's very important, if you're in a Roman Catholic church, not to spill or leave any crumbs behind, because it is the physical body of Jesus. The Lutherans also believe that Jesus is physically present in the elements, but they didn't use Aristotle as a way to explain it. The Lutherans said that... I'm not as good on the Lutheran position. It's kind of confusing. The Lutherans said that Jesus' physicality can be everywhere. By virtue of what they called the communication of attributes, they would say that the divine attribute of omnipresence, God is everywhere, is communicated to the physical attribute of Jesus' human nature, his body, so that his physical body can be present wherever sort of he wishes it to be, and he chooses to make it present in the bread and in the wine. He does so in the image that I have Forgive me, Lutherans, if you're hearing this and it's wrong, but the image that I have of how this happens is the image of a sandwich where you take meat and you stuff it in between two pieces of bread. There's a sense that Jesus has chosen to take his omnipresent physical body and and puts it there under, within, and between the bread and the wine, and then you physically eat and drink him at the supper. Now, why am I going into all of these uh, theoretical details? Because, because, um, because I wonder if actually our, our tradition isn't right on this point. Um, um, probably all of our traditions have messed up the Lord's Supper somehow. 
But I wonder if the Presbyterians didn't actually get this one right. Because what we say is, no, 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 the body of Jesus is not on that table. The body of Jesus is up above at the right hand of the Father. So we cannot physically feed on Jesus because we can't climb up into heaven and, and do so. But what we do at the table is spiritually feed on Jesus. And the key phrase that is used to describe that in our tradition is that when we eat and drink by faith, his, here's a phrase, his life passes over into ours. When we eat and drink by faith, his life passes over into ours. The Holy Spirit channels Christ's life, who is at the right hand of the Father, into ours. Actually, in Calvin's view of the supper, he, he thought of it in terms of actually that Jesus takes us up into heaven at the moment that we celebrate the supper, into heaven. And there in heaven, Christ is at the head of the table. And there in heaven, we feast with Christ as his life is channeled into ours. Um, I wonder if this isn't right, because that does seem to correspond with the future heavenly wedding feast. What do I mean? When we feast in heaven, Jesus won't be on the table. In the feast of heaven, we won't be eating him, but he will be at the head of the table. He will be the host of the meal. He will be alive, and we will be alive. And the only reason that we will be alive at that table is because his life has passed into ours. So we, we will be alive because the Holy Spirit communicates the life of Jesus to us constantly in heaven. There's not, there's not a nanosecond, uh, nano moment in heaven where the Holy Spirit isn't going to be communicating into you the fullness of Jesus' life. So here's my hypothesis. What happens at the Lord's Supper each week, his life coming into ours, will be our constant experience as the, as the Spirit continually feeds us at a banquet that never ends. You probably notice the, the way it's described here in Re- Revelation 19. It's not wedding suppers. It's not plural. It's wedding supper. As in, this is a meal that goes on forever. And it makes sense that uh, like this is, is um, giving us a foretaste of that. I may be wrong. There's probably good grounds to, to, to doubt that, and you may not have even been able to follow all of that, although I hope it wasn't too confusing. But if I'm right, you can see why it's very important for us to celebrate the supper every week. Um, who wants to taste heaven once a quarter? <laughs> who wants to taste heaven once a year? When, he, when, you, when you can taste and experience heaven weekly, I mean, I've always maintained that the reason you know, Christians should get out of bed on Sunday morning and come it's not because the music's great, and it's not because the preaching is great. It's because the supper is great. And because you are dining with Christ. And no matter how badly I screw up or things go wrong, you will get to dine with Christ when you eat and drink by faith. I'll tell you also something that's very encouraging for me, and that is today there are probably more Protestant churches celebrating communion every week than has ever happened before in the history of at least Protestantism. Um, there is a hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ in the sacrament. And I think that's one of the biggest developments that we've had since the Reformation. 
Yet even Christians who celebrate the Lord's Supper every week fail to grasp how momentous is this meal. We are not simply looking back 2,000 years, and we're not simply looking forward another however many thousand years. We are experiencing the future now as Christ's life passes into us. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the bride in verse 7. We read these words, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's uh, saints. Why does a bride wear a white gown on her wedding day? The answer is because the church is dressed in white on hers. Something you probably noticed, it's becoming increasingly common at weddings these days for uh, brides not to wear white. You know, sometimes if, some, if a, a lady is remarrying, she may choose not to wear white. Other times, if she just doesn't like the color white, she wants to go with um, something violet, uh, you may see that. If I were the Pope of Christianity, <laughs> I would make this a requirement. <laughs> Ladies, you have to wear white. Because when you stand in front of us in a white wedding gown, you are picturing our future selves. You're giving us a vision of what we will be. When you stand there in front of us, you're giving us an extremely important picture that we need to see and a picture that many of us don't actually feel. Um, What do I mean by that? I've met many Christians who absolutely believe that Jesus has saved them, that Jesus has, has um, loved them, but day in and day out, their experience of the Christian life is they feel ugly, they feel, they feel um, dirty, they, they don't feel like a bride. And I think that we need every kind of reinforcement we can get to believe the truth. And so when a bride stands before us there in white, She is giving you a mirror to see what you will be, even if you don't feel it right now. The other item I might require at weddings, if I was the Pope, is uh, I might require that you have to sing the last stanza of Amazing Grace. How does that last stanza go? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Most people sing that line and they think bright shining as the sun. Well, that modifies what word? There. Heaven. Heaven is a place that is bright shining as a sun. But did you realize that's not what John Newton was writing in his lyrics? Bright shining in the sun doesn't modify there. It modifies we. We will be. Bright shining as the sun. We will be clothed in verse 8. It says in fine linen, bright and clean, as a wedding gown is given to us. It really is a Cinderella story because she didn't have what she needed to wear to the ball. She had to be given her gown. And it says there in verse 8 that we will be given a gown. It's just a very interesting gown because it's described in verse, the second part of the verse, 
The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's saints. So how does it fit? Well, here's how it fits. Up in heaven, there is an angel seamstress working in heaven's attic. And every time the church of Jesus Christ gives a cup of cold water to somebody in the name of Jesus, every time she's charitable and merciful and compassionate and forgiving, um, those are pieces of lace that get woven into this gown. Um, there's a, a strand of satin charity. There's a strand of, um, I don't know, wedding gowns. <laughs> A flower of love. Um, And it's being woven in heaven right now. And it will be presented to you along with these words. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, take you, the church, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Only there won't be any death. (laughs) There won't be any sickness or poorer or worse. What is there going to be? There's going to be one unending wedding feast. That's beautiful. Let's close with verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited. You know, you go through life and you discover getting an invitation or or not getting an invitation, being excluded or being included, those are, that's a really prominent part of the human experience of life. If you're a seventh grade boy and you've tried out for the basketball team, you know, on the morning that you know that this team roster is going to be posted on the door of the gym. I mean, you, you have your mom bring you to school early, and you run through the halls of the school in order to find out if your name is on that list. So there are 25 guys who tried out, and only 11 of those are going to get the invite. That's a very powerful moment. In fact, the rest of us know that if your name is not there on the list, you might never try to play sports again on any team again. So, so powerful is that idea of exclusion or inclusion or exclusion and embrace. You know, I wasn't a, an athlete. I wish I was, but I was a drama geek. And I tell you that the moment that was the most stressful moment of life is when you, at 3.30 in the afternoon, the parts of the cast list is going to be posted outside the wall of, you know, the drama classroom, and you're just wondering, what am I, am I going to make the cast? Am I going to get the lead? Those are the most tense seconds on the countdown timer as you're waiting for 3.30 to arrive. Do you get invited to the prom? Um, do you get invited to the second grade birthday party? Are you the only one in the class that's excluded? Well, friends, you are invited to the greatest party imaginable. You are blessed, in the words of this passage. Um, if you're here this morning, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You can consider this sermon as a, a dropping off of the invitation in your lap. Blessed are you. You've been invited. Uh, will you come? Have you RSVP'd? 
well, how do I, how do I RSVP for a party like this? It's, it's pretty simple. Um, it's very similar to how, you, how you're admitted to this table. It, it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in this life, faith that's followed by baptism. I mean, if this is part of the grand feast, then the way you get admitted to this table by tr- simple trust in Jesus is the way I think you'll be admitted to that one. Um, there, this is a party you don't want to miss. You can't miss this one. This is your, your wedding. There's nothing in our culture that even comes close to capturing the unmitigated joy of this wedding, nor the unmitigated sorrow of being excluded from this wedding. You remember how the Bible describes those who aren't admitted? It says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's like two kinds of people in the world. There are the weepers and the gnashers. The weepers are the ones who see how wonderful the banquet uh, is, and they're so sad, they break down into tears because their name isn't on uh, on the list. And the gnashers are those who are just so angry at God that he would have been so unfair to me. But not you. Better things, we hope, for you. You're invited. Please RSVP. Come to Christ believe in Christ, um, come to Christ and be baptized and join us at the table. Every time you see the elements pass you by, that should give you a little concern because it is prefiguring what's going to happen one day. Don't let it happen. Come to Christ, uh, the faithful and triumphant groom who, who takes you to be his bride. Amen.